0: Turning back this morning in the Word of God to the book of Luke and to the chapter 1, we'll read 52 and 53 again. So, Luke 1, verse 52 and 53. There we read, He hath put down the mighty from their seats, and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. With God's Word open before us, let's bow together in a further word of prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, again we commit our way unto Thee. We pray that Thy hand of mercy and grace and love and sweet affection will be upon us, and that we will know the coming of the great Redeemer to our hearts, to our lives and to our homes, help us to properly celebrate the birth of the Lord Christ, and give us some of the joy and fuse it into us that those Old Testament prophets had, even in thinking about the fact that the Messiah would be coming to Israel in our Savior's precious. And blessed name we pray. Amen. Charles Dickens' play, A Christmas Carol, it's a Christmas classic that's been reimagined, turned into a musical, shown in the West End without feel every single year, and many people find it responsible for jump-starting a festive feeling in their hearts year by year. This A Christmas Carol is a play about a mean-spirited and selfish old man, Ebenezer Scrooge, who hates Christmas. And on this one particular cold Christmas Eve, he's unkind to the people who work for him, in particular his clerk. Then he refuses to give to charity. Then he's rude to his nephew, who has burst in and who has invited him with characteristic zeal to come around and spend Christmas with us. When Scrooge gets home, He's visited by the ghost of his old business partner, Jacob Marley, then by three others, the ghosts of Christmas past and Christmas present and Christmas future. And led by them, he is taught the error and sinfulness of his ways. Then when he wakes up on Christmas Day, we find that he's full of excitement, that he buys the biggest turkey in town for the Cratchit family, and then he spends the day with his nephew, and he is full of the joys of Christmas. Now, my interest, and therefore your interest today, is not so much in the play. But in the way in which it has, well, some important sidelights, a little character in it as well, the emphasis on the word little that uh, will take our attention as well, and a bit of a backstory that's not as commonly told to the whole play, A Christmas Carol. And were this points us to the ministry and to the message of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That is what we want to mention today. And then looking back on this year, 2022, to a, an event in our country that, again, deserves mention, though it is a sad event in itself. But we will touch that on the way through as well. Our Lord's coming to earth is revealed to us in His own words in Matthew 4, the verse 18 and 19. We read that today, and He's opening up in the synagogue the prophecy of Isaiah, and He gets the relevant Scripture, and He says, this day is this day prophecy fulfilled in your ears because he's saying here is why I have come. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to Preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the broken-hearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And we have some allusion to that as well in Luke one fifty-two and fifty-three that we have just read as well. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low no degree he hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. And then again, our Lord, he summarized his ministry. In the words that we have in Matthew 11, the verse 4 through to 5, Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. In other words, what you've noted about what I'm doing. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, those words shine the spotlight on one of the characters, admittedly not one of the main characters, but a character in a Christmas carol, and that is Tiny Tim, who is one of the sons of the Clark of Ebenezer Scrooge, one of the sons of Bob Cratchit. That's the name of the Clark. Now, where that takes us today right away is into the whole realm of disability. Disability, an important topic. Tiny Tim walks with a crutch… He has his limbs supported by an iron frame, but in spite of the physical difficulties that he so evidently has, he's a positive and a generous little child. He thinks of others, and he's well-loved by his family. I was reading the comments of Jana Fry yesterday, and she explained, The year my own daughter was diagnosed with disability, Tiny Tim captured my attention. I think, she says, Tiny Tim was the first person with a disability that I knew. He was followed by other characters in stories and movies, then by autobiographical writers, but Tiny Tim was the first to teach me the worth and value found in a life that paradoxically becomes more precious because of an ability lost. And that is very important. There is an estimated 1.3 billion people, or 16% of the global population, that have a significant disability today. Now, as we look out around us, on the surface of things, our world would appear to become very sympathetic. It seems to have become more aware of the worth and the value of those who suffer from disabilities. And it seems to be making significant and concerted efforts in removing barriers that restrict the choices for disabled people. In the Bible, I am told that God loves and cares for those who He has made. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He is slow to anger, of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. And I'm quoting Psalm 145, verse 8 and verse 9 there. I'm told as well in Scripture that He shows the tenderness of a father towards his children. Very familiar words in Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14. Like as a father, pitieth his children. So the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our freedom, he remembereth that we are dust. Not only that, he participates, gets right alongside us in the middle of our suffering. In Isaiah 63 and 9, I'm reading, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Now, whenever suffering comes and visits us, as it was in the life of Job, sometimes we think so often it appears unjust. I mean, why has this come, and why has this come my way? But the Bible also explains, and many of us out of our own experience can testify to this fact, that suffering can be the very thing that drives us back to God when we have drifted away from Him. That's not why suffering is always sent. That's not what I'm saying. But on some occasions, it's our suffering, the suffering of someone else, and it has this impact. And effect. It drives us back into the arms of our loving God. The psalmist said in Psalm 119 verse 67, again 71, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Again, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes." One commentator has said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And it turns out, to people's surprise, that suffering can even result in some good news. Because we have the words in 2 Corinthians 4 and 17, written by Paul, who was no stranger himself to suffering, he says, for our light affliction which is but for a moment worketh for us a more exceeding, far more exceeding, and eternal weight of glory. And then he says that he's making a calculation again with eternity in view and all of the blessings of that place. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, we're going down the line here of disability in our first main point this morning, and some things need to be clarified what disability is not. I find when I come to the Scriptures some very encouraging teaching on the subject of disability because the Bible gives disability a meaning that it lacks in almost every other religious body, every philosophical body of thought on this earth? Because many of them, they will tell you that well, disability is karma, the Bible tells us it is not karma. Eastern religions will go down that line. What do we find? An example in John 9, the verse 1 to 3, Jesus sees a man blind from birth. The disciples ask question, man, man, has this man sinned? master, who is it? The sin is his, the sin is his parents. Somebody must have sinned because he wouldn't have suffered, wouldn't be suffering unless there was sin there. He's born blind, and our Lord explodes that notion when he tells him, neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. It's not karma at all. Disability is not a curse. Some communities believe it is but we don't lose heart because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day, a point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. And then again, disability is no hindrance to God's grace in our lives. In fact, it is quite the opposite. I come to Paul again. Use him as our example. He had a thorn in the flesh. It really agitated and grieved and pulled him down. And he pleaded with God to remove it. And then he discovered, here's the conclusion. I need to come to. God's grace is sufficient for me. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Wrong, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 10. And so in contrast to the culture of Bible times, the culture in certain parts of the world today, the hidden culture that affects many hearts, when we see a disabled person and we shy away from them and are awkward towards them, a recent survey by Scope revealed that 67%, two-thirds of us, say that we are on comfortable in talking to disabled people. Well, disabled people are by no means untouchable. Let's get close. And our Lord did He not demonstrate that. The woman with the hemorrhage crept up behind Him to touch the hem of His garment. She was healed, and He singled her out on account of her special faith. Luke 8, 43 to 48. We have the man with that contagious skin disease who broke the law that banned him from even going into the sitting. And he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet and he pleads with him, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Well, how did our Lord respond? His immediate response was to stretch out a hand, touch that man that the law forbade him to touch. And he declared, I will be thy clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, Luke 5, the verse 11 through to 13. When our Lord becomes incarnate in Bethlehem, exercises his ministry through Judea and Galilee, you'll find reading the Scriptures that his attitude was incredible. Regarding disabled persons. Revolutionary in his day, even in our day as well. And yet, the sad fact is that despite certain advances in our helping those with disabilities, we live in a world where countries exterminate children with certain disabilities before they are even born. And that's another reason why reflecting on Tiny Tim is a valuable thing. Scrooge's vision of a dark Christmas future showed him that the world was not better without Tiny Tim. He had a phrase that he used at the beginning, and that was to decrease the surplus population— And sadly, that's a phrase that's in the heart, if not the speech of people today, to decrease the surplus population. But he was shown that the Cratchit family, of which Tiny Tim was a member, they lived a fuller life because of this little lad within it. Not because they were gaining anything in material wealth, but because in giving of themselves to make his life the best that it possibly could be, they doubled their own joy by sharing in someone else's. And Scrooge later, when the turnaround comes, finds his own life enriched as he provides for tiny Tim and gains, effectively, a son in him. It's extremely sad to reflect today that we have been living through a year when, over in America, the rule versus Wade was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court that removed the constitutional right to an abortion that has ensured in time that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives will be saved. And yet over here, our own British government has pushed ahead with the enactment of a most radical abortion regime in our province. Westminster's enforced legislation means that our country has now the most liberal abortion law in the United Kingdom with abortion allowed without having to give a reason up to 12 weeks enabling sex-selective abortion. It's also effectively permitting abortions to take up to 24 weeks for any reason and up to birth if the baby is deemed to have a disability and even a limited effort that we saw launched through the Severe Fetal Impairment Abortion Amendment Bill that was first tabled by Paul Given, then carried forward by Christopher Stalford, and that attempted to remove a clause which allowed unborn children with conditions such as Down syndrome, cleft palate, and clubfoot to be aborted after the 24-week limit that applies in most other cases, that, even that, was voted down by our own MLA's. How incredible that people elected to serve in our society should so callously vote to scrap a bill which would have given some extra protections from abortion for unborn children with disabilities. And at the time, Christopher said that vote sends an awful message to the disabled. Whereas opponents of the band, such as Alliance MLA, Paula Bradshaw said, it was a significant day for trusting women. There was, of course, the horrible experience of Heidi Croter a woman with Down syndrome whose case was dismissed by three judges at the Court of Appeal on Friday the 25th of November 2022 when she was arguing that allowing terminations up to birth, if the child in the womb has Down syndrome, that is discriminatory and that stigmatizes disabled people. And she said she was absolutely distraught by the ruling. And the existing law made her feel that people like her should be extinct. This is horrendous. And it's hellish. And we can only pray and should campaign that our politicians will move from being the heartless facilitators of the murder of the unborn to become earnest defenders of their right to live, with or without disability, particularly at this time of year. It should be remembered that a baby in the womb was the first to rejoice at the news of the coming of Jesus. Think carefully about that. In Luke chapter 1, verse 44 through to 45, it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost and she spake out with a loud voice. And then she says to Mary what had happened. As soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the be leaped in my womb for joy and this holy child, Jesus, that had caused that joy even in the womb of another. He was born to help us with our defects and disabilities. And Matthew 11 and 5 makes that plea, and the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And He was born so that he could navigate His way to death on Calvary so that there He would address the most vital issue of the deformity and depravity of our hearts, Judasim. Matthew 1 and 21, that grand declaration, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shall call His name Jesus, for why? He shall save His people from their sins. And so we sing... Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring, by thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Tiny Tim prompts us to consider these words of the Lord Jesus to search out what the Bible teaches about disability. And he also teaches us to think along the lines of design. He himself, that little lad, lived with a deep sense of purpose. After taking Tiny Tim to church on Christmas Day, Bob Cratchit, his wife, came back and he said to his wife, he told me, Tiny Tim that was, coming home, that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day he who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. In other words, he was rising above his own suffering and hoping. People that saw him in his condition would see past him and see Christ. Think and think again. Think at a deep level about that. And again, I quote Janna Fry. Tiny Tim, she said, had it exactly right. How often when I look at my little girl, I remember the one who healed the sick and raised the dead. How often I remember that he blessed the little children. How often I remember that he wept with the pain of loss. How often I remember that he will set all things right one day. It's been a hard journey to wake up and find disability has visited my own house, but Tiny Tim, my friend, since childhood reminds me that life is still full and vibrant and worth the living. And if we can live with even half his joy, maybe others, he said, maybe others will remember Jesus. Is it not an essential thing? As we come into God's house on this Christmas Day that we should really eat the love of God and help others to focus their minds on Christ, just like Tiny Tim who was in church and hoping that people were looking at him and saying, here's a cripple coming to church, and it might be pleasant for them to reflect on this Christmas Day on the one who made Liam Beggar's walk and made blind men to see. The result of our Savior's birth was, of course, Joy the story of how our world can only find its full joy in Jesus Christ. That story begins with the birth of John the Baptist in New Testament times, because the angel says to Zacharias, his father, in Luke 1, 13 to 17, thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to make ready a people prepared of the Lord. And through the angel here, the Lord is promising people are going to rejoice at the birth of this harbinger, this forerunner, this trailblazer for the Messiah, and the joy that God's people would have in Jesus would be so real and so intense that they would feel that joy when they looked into John the Baptist's face, when they heard and witnessed his ministry, the messenger, the man set apart to declare, the King is coming. Rejoice, and should we not rejoice today that the King was then and has now come into the world to save sinners and to spread His pardon. Then when the baby was born, The Messiah himself came forth from heaven through his mother's womb. And that night the angel appears to those shepherds and declares in Luke 2, verse 10 and 11, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And those poor, unsuspecting shepherds now... Privileged man, joyful men. They could have been stringing what instruments they had and beginning to sing that carol that we know so well, joy to the world. The Lord is come, let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Rejoice, because the King is come. And with this baby, fullness of joy appears to the hearts of all who will believe. And this is the purpose in our Lord coming into this world, to turn our sorrow into joy. How did He do it? He lived a life of perfect righteousness for us. Then he went to the cross, died a substitutionary death. When he received on Calvary the wrath that was due to our sin, Luke 23, 46, he died to purchase the joy that those angels announced at his birth. He came to this world to redeem and to rectify it by a perfect redemption. And ultimately, we look forward to the time where there's going to be the restoration and renovation of all things, where he will bring joy to our hearts, fill up any joy that we have in his heaven. This final restoration this reversal of the curse, for that's what it is. It will mean that in heaven, every single disability will be removed. And we have the allusion to that in Romans eight, the verse twenty-one to twenty-three, the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth and pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the First fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it the redemption of our body. And in Revelation twenty one Verse two to four, John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And he sees a scene there that encourages his heart. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. A line in one of our carols goes, So, no more let sins and sorrows grow. And the battle, we know what rages around us, the turmoil may well be within us even today, and we'll have that for a few short decades down here. We will experience many losses along the way, but ask God for grace to fix our eyes on the joy that is ahead. Rejoice, for our names always have been and are written in heaven, Luke 10 and verse 20. Rejoice, nothing in this world, no sinner at sorrow at all can diminish our joy in Christ or separate us from Him or everlasting happiness. Rejoice, for our Lord was born and died to have a world of worship. And there will be sons and daughters from every people on earth and we'll live and we'll sing and we'll enjoy God with them forever. May our verdict be, Lord, see like that little lad in the play, Tiny Tim? Wanted people to look past him, through him, see Christ, to be like Jesus. Weren't we thinking of that? In recent months, to be like Jesus, all I ask is to be like him all through life's journey from earth to glory. All I ask to be like him— There's an emphasis here on disability, also on design, and also, finally, on death. Scrooge contemplated the death of Tiny Tim and was quite overcome by it. Tiny Tim did not, in the play, die. So, where do we have death? Well, I want to consider his mother's death, his real mother's death. What's his real mother's death about? Well, you see, in real life, Charles Dickens, who wrote A Christmas Carol, had an older sister called Frances, and he loved her very much. She was an accomplished pianist, a professional singer, trained in the Royal Academy of Music. In 1835, she sang in a concert, part of a group that included another singer, Henry Burnett, and he too had studied at the Academy. Francis later married Henry Burnett. The couple of two sons, Henry Augustus, born in 1839, Charles Dickens Kneller in 1841. Henry Jr. was a disabled and sickly child and is said to have been the inspiration behind the character Tiny Tim in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. So, it was his nephew that gave him the idea for inclusion of Tiny Tim. I catapulted as she was into a world of adulation and success as well. Frances and her husband, Henry, they toured the London theaters, and they performed to very enthusiastic audiences. But Henry, the husband, could not forget the gospel message that he had been taught as a child. The couple moved to Bath, and they went and attended the church that I have got into, and love to have got into there because the famous William J was once the pastor, and he was the minister in the day that Charles Dickens' sister and her husband were worshiping in this church in Bath. Henry, the husband, became aware that the way he was living was displeasing to the Lord, so he gave up the theater work. Though Francis's wife was sobered by the birth of her disabled son, Still, she loved the high life. She liked the glamour of popularity. But the family moved up to Manchester in search of other employment. And as they were walking past the church one Sunday, we have Frances getting a sudden urge. And I pray that'll happen to people walking up Ravenhill Road and along Ardenley Avenue. She got a sudden urge to go into that church. And as she listened to the preaching week by week, she saw the emptiness of her own life. And she learned my only hope is found in Jesus Christ. She wrote a letter to her pastor, and she said in the letter, I had repeated prayer with my lips, but not from my heart. I seldom read the Word of God, and when I did so, I read it as a task. I seemed to live as if this world were my home forever, entirely forgetting that I was merely a pilgrim wending my way to eternity. By degrees, she testifies, my eyes were opened, and I saw with shame and confusion my utter worthlessness in the sight of God, and unless I came to Him through His dear Son, I could not be saved. I prayed that I might know the Lord Jesus, His power, the immensity of His love for us sinful creatures in dying for us on the cross. I prayed for faith in Him, and God answered her prayer. But one evening in 1846, her voice broke. Her doctor told her that she had tuberculosis, TB, would not recover. The family moved back to London to enable her to have treatment there, but she died on the 2nd of September, 1848, aged only 38. She was buried in the dissenter's Nonconformist section of the western side of Highgate Cemetery that had been a family tradition with her. Her son died, Henry Junior, soon after in 1849, and he is buried along with his mother. In a letter that he wrote, Charles Dickens wrote on July, so that's the final months of his sister's life, 5th of July of 1848, he's writing to a friend, Joan Forster, and he describes a visit that he had to see his sister while she was dying of consumption. Her cough suddenly ceased, almost, and strange to say she immediately became aware of her hopeless state to which she resigned herself after an hour's unrest and struggle with extraordinary sweetness and constancy. The irritability passed, all hope faded away, though only two nights before she had been planning for after Christmas. She is greatly changed. I had a long interview with her today alone, and when she had expressed some wishes about the funeral and her being buried in unconsecrated ground, I asked her whether she had any care or anxiety in the world. She said, No, none. It was hard to die at such a time in life, but she had no alarm whatsoever in the prospect of the change, felt sure we would meet together in a better world, and although they said that she might rally for a time, did not really wish it. She said she was quite calm and happy, relied upon—here's the vital thing— relied upon the mediation of Christ, and had no terror at all. She had worked very hard even when ill, but she believed that was her nature— and neither regretted nor complained of it. Burnett had always been very good to her. They'd never quarreled. She was sorry to think of his going back to such a lonely home and was distressed about her children, but not painfully so. Charles and her husband were at her bedside when the final moments came. During those last moments, when she was dying, she whispered the words of Scripture that we have in Isaiah 43 and 2, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. Is not that quite the way to die? though she's planning for after Christmas, testifies no cares or anxieties in the world, no alarm about the prospect of dying, going to a better world, quite calm and joyful, happy about it, relying upon the mediation of Christ, and at no terror at all. What does it mean to rely upon the mediation of Christ? Well, ever since the fall of man, Sinners have been unable to approach God apart from going through a mediator. The priests in the Old Testament were a bit of a picture, but they had such limitations that Hebrews 7:23, Hebrews 7:27, Hebrews 10, and the verse four flag up. Paul tells us, 1 Timothy two and verse five, "There is only one who can fulfill the role of mediator between God and man, that is the man, Christ. Jesus to be this effective mediator. He must be truly God and truly man, because that mediator has to touch, connect both, represent the interests of both parties. And as God, he brings divine justice and mercy to bear in our relationship to our Creator. As man, He brings the perfect human obedience and that perfect sacrificial death. We need to be reconciled to God. That's why with joy, our carol can conclude, once in royal David's city and our eyes, at last shall see Him through His own redeeming love for that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above, and He leads His children on to the place where He has gone. Our Lord came, and He came so that He might suffer and die, to reach out, so that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor of the gospel preached to them. And His ministry is our commission. And may we follow in His footsteps day by day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we call upon Thy name today. We thank Thee for Thine abundant mercy, Thy lovely grace. And we pray that on this Christmas day, we will know much of Thee drawing near, visiting us, instilling in our hearts the kind of calm and the joy that Francis Burnett enjoyed even as she passed from this world to the next. Come and answer prayer. We are planning beyond Christmas. Lord, may Christ be central in every plan we make and whatever we plan, may we always have an eye, a vital eye, upon eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.